Welcome to CityGraceNY.com. Thank you for listening to this message recorded live at City Grace Church. Good morning. Well, it's an honor to be here this morning. And uh, I think for the last almost close 30 years of ministry, the Lord had given me opportunity to preach in many different pulpits, whether Presbyterians, to Methodists, to Baptists, to Charismatics, Pentecostals, many non-denominational churches. But this is my first time that I'm speaking in Re- uh, Dutch Reformed Church, the CLC. <laughs> so it's also a new experience for me. It's also a good learning curve for me to understand your church and also your, your community as a, as a CLC. So I think from that perspective, I'm very excited uh, what Lord is going to do this morning. Amen? I think scripture we just read is a very, very exciting part of the part of the Bible for sure. And as I'm kind of also looking through the congregation, and I can, I can, I can uh, sure, uh, surely uh, testify you guys have a very good DNA, right? Because uh, when every animals are small, whether it's a tiger or a cat, they have about the same size, right? But when they're fully grown, it's just a completely different size with a completely different capacity to do what they can do, right? Because of DNA. And as I'm looking through your congregation, we don't have 1,000 people or 10,000 people here. But I can say that you have overcome a lot of challenges that today's church has to overcome, right? First, your church has overcome the barriers of age. I see many different age groups in your group, and that you have overcome the barriers of a race, many ethnicals, background people, as a one body of Jesus Christ, you are coming together, fellowship together, worshiping together. And I can also see you are coming from many different works of life, and you overcome all what the materialism and modern, postmodern world is presenting. You, you win over that barrier. Amen? And more so, I, as I'm observing your service, I begin to realize the diversity in the leadership. The empowerment is given to many different leaders. And many people are actively working in their own field and having the sense of ownership over their part of a responsibility which is, I think, one of the very important aspects I want to stress. And I can go on and on and on, <laughs> because I've seen so many good aspects in this congregation this morning. More so as a person who served China over 25 years, and seeing our Chinese-American brothers in the congregation, I'm very excited. Uh, because uh, I always uh, share in, in introduction to my Chinese brothers or when I speak in Japan or in other countries, this is how I introduce myself. My, my physical body is made in Korea. <laughs> my mind is made in America. And my heart is made in China. <laughs> because uh, that's how much I, I loved China for the last 25 years. I gave my 30s, my 40s, half of my, more than half of my 50s to the nation. And during that time, China had gone through tremendous changes, right? When I first went to China in 1993, it was a very 
insignificant country in terms of economy and political influence in the world. And simply is a co poor communist country. But, uh, and also the, if from the church perspective, there's a less than one million Christians. But after 25, almost close to 33 decades has passed, today China is the second largest economy in the world, continues challenging the America and competing who's going to be the best in the world, strongest in the world. It's a total transformation. More so the changes in the church has been tremendous, less than one million Christians. And ever since the 1949, the communist state was established in Beijing. All the missionaries and churches been shut down and missionaries been kicked out and Bibles been burned and the believers in China had to go, go through a lot of persecutions, and a lot of oppression and hardship. But the Spirit of God remained in the nation. Although all the foreign missionaries being kicked out, church doors been shut down, Bible was burned. But the Spirit of Holy Spirit was in the nation, and He was working with His people in China. Those brave souls who did not afraid to, to take a high price to preach the gospel, the church was remained under the persecution of a communism. When China was reopening in 1972, the world began to realize that one of the church that has tremendous testimony had survived through the, those terrible times in China, paid a very high price. And soon the Spirit of God is moving in the nation from 80s and especially from 90s. The mighty move of the Holy Spirit start touching the hearts of Chinese people. Especially in 1989, when communist government shut down over thousands and thousands of college students in uh, Tiananmen Square, it wasn't the desire of a communist party, but uh, they didn't have any other choice but to forcefully suppress them. Otherwise, country will be in, 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 a, in, a, in a lot of uh, confusions. So when that decision was made, when, when the Chinese people witnessed their own government, the Communist Party, shoot down so many of the young people, so many of the civilians on the streets of the Beijing, and it challenged their worldview. And suddenly, Chinese people are seeking the meaning of life, different meaning of life. What they've been taught, what they've been indoctrinated for first 30 years now has been challenged. The system they trust, that system put the gun over to them and shoot down their children and shoot the civilians on the streets. And that opens a tremendous spiritual vacuum in the souls of Chinese people. And that is the time that God poured his spirit upon China, especially in the area of Hebei province today. From the whole southern, uh, southeastern region of China, began to receive the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, just like we read the scripture today. That spirit moved so powerfully through the older countryside of the China. It was hard to start a church at that time in the city, especially in 89 to about 2000 time, because the culture wasn't ready to receive the gospel yet. 
But the uh, gospel was moving, the spirit of God was moving through all the countryside, and each day, more than 20,000, even some estimation go up to even 27,000 Chinese people became Christian each day, not each year. Hallelujah. If we are good at mathematics, you can do calculation, changing from 1 million to 150 million Christians today in China. So I can testify you today, China is no longer mission field. China is no longer poor communist country, but China is a nation with over 100 million Christians with the second largest economy in the world. And God's spirit is continuously pouring upon his church. And also that blessing flow into the system of China. Because ever since the 1993, one of the big questions I had in my heart was, I seen so much corruption in the system, but regardless of all the corruptions, nation is growing, economy was growing, China was gaining power and influence in all different parts of the world. And even today, in outside scholars and outside the leaders, and it is a big question mark. And even China went into the Africa less than a little over 10 years time. But today, anyone of you who travel to Africa, you understand. And there is a nickname for Africa, is made in China. Okay? So everything is changing even in Africa. These are the big questions to even the world leaders and how all these things are happening. But this morning, I want to testify you, all that is happening because of prayers of God's people in China. Under such persecution, Chinese believers did not surrender. Many of them were imprisoned. Many of them were persecuted. Many of them were even killed. But they maintained their faith and they gathered together to worship in a secret place in darkness. And they baptized, even baptized the people under such condition. And those commitment and those sacrifice that God brought blessing to the nation. Because their prayer at that time was, Lord, save China. That was their prayer from 80s and 90s and early part of 2000. There were about 25 years period. Churches of the China, their prayer was, Lord, save China. Save the Chinese people. Bring salvation to our nation. Indeed, God answered that prayer and bring that nation from less than 1 million Christians to the 100 million Christians today. Even some estimation even go up even higher. But today, for last about over five years' time, the prayer had changed, especially about eight years now. They've been praying that God will send China to the nations. The church will go into the nations. So if the nation is a poor communist country, it'll be very difficult for Chinese people to go overseas. Even though they go, they will not be respected. And good example is the Korea. In 1950, entire Korea infrastructure was destroyed by the Korean War. By 60s, Korea was one of the poorest countries in the world. When the Spirit of God was outpouring in spirit, just like the scripture we read, in the 70s and 80s, Miracle was happening in the nation. That one poorest country suddenly turning into one of the super economical superpower in Asia. And soon, mid part of the 80s, churches begin to send missionaries and the large number of missions coming out of there. 
And even in America, same way. When we first engaged in a Pacific war with Japan, and our nation wasn't even sure that we can win that battle, there was a lot of doubt even in our Congress. But the situation forces us into, into the Pacific situation as we engage, and eventually that immediately led into the global mission in South Pacific. Spirit of God was pouring upon from New Zealand to Australia to Indonesia, all the way to Korea, now to China. That was happening throughout the last 40, 50 years' time that we just had witnessed that. Can you just give a hand to the Lord? Isn't that amazing? So I can say that China is, not, is no longer a mission field but China is the mission force for the world. Hallelujah. The largest missionary force will come out from China in next 10 years' time. Now Satan is trying everything to stop the movement of the Holy Spirit from China today. We see the spiritual conflict in Hong Kong. It's, this conflict is not just a political or economical or social conflicts. It is the most spiritual conflict that are happening. We need to pray. We don't pray for the certain political agenda, but we pray for God's blessing upon the land. We need to pray for the government of the China. We need to pray for the government of Hong Kong for God's blessing. Because when we bless our enemy, the revenge is in the hand of God. We don't fight against the flesh and blood. But our spiritual weapon is our prayer, our word of a blessing. That is our weapon. When we bless our enemy, the enemy will repent and change their course. If they don't change, the revenge is in the hand of God. They need to answer to God. So as we engage the current situation in China, I really believe we as a church, especially church in the United States, we need to pray and bless the nation of China, leadership of China, and bless the leadership of Hong Kong and people in Hong Kong. When we do that, the spiritual weight and the spiritual force will bring changes to the situation. The work that Holy Spirit has begun to mobilize the largest mission force from China to the Central Asia, to Middle East, Eastern Europe, and Africa, and the rest part of the world. God had already set up the proper infrastructure for China missions to move. Why? Because for the last 20 years, God's blessing upon Chinese infrastructure, eventually Chinese influence is global now. It's not regional, it's a global. If even our nation hadn't changed our course that how we in our foreign policy for last three for last three years, by today, or even China had on two more years in the way that they've been doing for five years ago, this is my opinion, they would have probably complete global dominance over any parts of the world, and then there will be no way to turn it around. But a current change is happening in many different levels, create a very unique situation to rebalance the world power and more so on a rebalance the spiritual force that how the mission can continue on to the rest of part of the world. This, I think we're living in a very important period 
That because God is preparing the churches in America for the end time. Just as much as he's working in this nation, he's working with China. His spirit is working in, in Russia. His spirit is working in the churches in Africa. He's positioning his people. But there are fundamental changes in happening in a global mission today. In old days, more than 90% of the world wealth was focusing and concentrating in, in, in the western part of the world. But today, even that wealth has dispersed. There are many wealth, even in Asia, wealth in Europe, wealth even in Africa, has been dispersed. There are financial forces has been given to many different parts of the world. More so, when we think about even in 50 years ago, you, you use the word missionary, everybody will think about the white face, right? From America, from, London, from Europe, or any countries from Europe, or maybe Australia and New Zealand. But there are more missionaries from countries from Asia. There are more missionaries from even A India. More missionaries from the Africa. There's a fundamental change is happening. Another huge change that are happening in our old mindset, the mi when we say the missionary, is only the clergyman can go out and plant churches. But today, that change is a very clear in every part of the world. There's a more professionals and the educators and business people reaching out to the more souls than any other the biblical, the theologically trained clergyman. And large number of tent makers, business as a mission, the bammers, and the lay, I don't like to use the word layman because that's not in the Bible. There's no such a thing as a layman. Amen? We are all saints of God. That call has been given to everybody. Each one of you have received that call. When Jesus said that you will go into the world and baptize people in Father's name, in Son's name, in the name of the Holy Spirit. That call of the Great Commission was not just given to missionaries or pastors. That call is to each one of you. Can I hear amen? amen? We all have had received the Great Commission call. That doesn't mean that we need to drop everything going to the China or going to the Africa. Because where you're standing, that is your mission field. And then you have that calling, and you have a responsibility to carry out the Great Commission to the people that you are in contact with. For that purpose, God has given you health. God has given you time. God has given you your job. God has given you your business. And God has given you your influence with the peoples who are around you. And we need to transform that all the relationship as our mission connection to our community. First, to our family, to our workplace, to our school, to our city, and to our nations. And this fundamental change is basically what's happening in Acts 1. As you, you know, because time, how much time do I have, Ben? <laughs> That's very dangerous from the preacher from China. <laughs> China, we preach 10 hours. <laughs> right? So, yeah, maybe we'll preach until we get hungry, right? <laughs> I hope you had a big breakfast. <laughs> yeah. 
So when we read Acts 1, I think to save time, we will not read the scripture, but I will, I will quote the scripture directly to you as I'm, as I'm doing it. You know, when we go into the Acts 1, you know, it's very clear, just like the scripture we just read. Lord told his people, do not leave Jerusalem that wait upon the promise to the Holy Spirit. It's not a new idea. Lord already has spoken to them. In John 14 and John 16, the Lord has very clearly spoke to his, his followers, his disciples, that promised the Holy Spirit will come and what he will do. When the advocator, when the helper comes, he will lead you into all the truth, right? So I want you to kind of put yourself into that upper room when Jesus told them, do not leave a Jerusalem, wait upon me. So they were all gathered at the, at the upper rooms. And how many people were there? It was 120. About 120 people were there. We can safely say 11 apostles, Judah has fallen away. 11 of maybe 70 disciples, and the rest maybe someone who related to Jesus Christ personally. So there's about 120 people waiting at the upper room. And I want you to kind of put yourself into that upper room and thinking about when, right before Jesus died, what was his apostles, his disciples was doing? They were fighting over who's going to be the big person in the new kingdom, right? After the Lord was resurrected, when these disciples had encounter with the Lord, resurrected Lord, what was the first two questions? Lord, this is the time that you will restore the kingdom into Israel. What are they asking? Lord, who's going to be the prime minister? Who's going to be the minister of the finance? And this is what they were thinking. Even right before the fall of the, 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 the descendant of the Holy Spirit. And I want you to kind of put that in the situation. With such a mindset, they are gathering in upper room and they don't even know what they're waiting for. I think a few of them had experienced the Holy Spirit you know, from the reading of the Luke's. And when they go out, the Lord, Lord gave them the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit did not go in them, but the Holy Spirit was with them. They went out and performed miracles. So some of them had the experience to work with the Holy Spirit. But they don't really understand what is the meaning of the dwelling of the Holy Spirit. So as they are sitting there waiting upon the promised Holy Spirit that Jesus has told them to wait for, probably they had no idea. And the reason they are also waiting, when the Holy Spirit comes, you shall receive a power. And probably they are thinking, when this power comes, we're going to kill the older Romans, and then we're going to totally turn everything upside down. And we're going to rebuild the kingdom into the Israel. Probably this is what they were thinking. I think it's a very reasonable thinking, I believe, right? Because looking at the trend, people doesn't change overnight, right? Even sometimes 30 years, people don't change. But this is not a really long time. From the Passover, the Lord as a Passover lamb, he died on the cross. From the Passover to the Pentecost is only 50 days. So looking at that time period, it's less than two months. People don't change in two months. It's the same Peter, it's the same Philip, it's the same Thomas who asked the questions and who was fighting over each other. 
that who's going to be the big in the new kingdom that is coming. So these people sitting there had no idea about the church. Because as we read the whole four Gospels, Jesus never talked about the church. Jesus never taught them about how to manage the church. And never told them about how to preach even. Right? He told a lot about the kingdom of God and the nature of God. And the, let them experience and witness the power of God. But in terms of uh, all the day-to-day challenges that we are facing as a church, as a, as a body of Christ, he never mentioned even. So sitting at the upper room, they probably had uh, no idea. First, they didn't know what they were waiting for and what's going to happen when they, when they receive the Holy Spirit. And certainly, they had uh, no idea what the church is about. And more so, why they were in the upper room. Why they were hiding themselves from the public is also the fear, right? It's a lot of concern for themselves. Who's going to be the big? How are we going to change the surrounding so that we will create an influence for our world? And we will repositioning ourselves in our society. And, and these are the thoughts that are going on in their mind. And then their mind is not even going into the Gentiles. Their mind was only able to go into all the Jewish community and Jewish people. So that's about far as they could imagine, they could think. But when the Holy Spirit came in chapter 2, what are the first things they do? Peter, was, Peter went out and he stood and 11 apostles, disciples was apostles standing behind him, and he stopped preaching. You know, I want you to kind of, when you have time, to read the chapter 2 very carefully what Peter preached. Now, it just amazes me to, to think about a man, even for a few days ago, who denied Jesus Christ. Jesus had to ask him three times about, do you love me? To reinstate his position in the apostleship. Even though his position changed, his mind as a person has not changed. Such man preached in a chapter 2, later part. It's quite amazing the, how he used the prophecy from the Joel, how he used all the Psalms of the David and related to the, 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 the revelation of the Messiah and proclaimed the the present and even to the future and, and relating to the past. And such a well-designed and well-prepared the messages, the first message ever preached on earth as a church, right? That we read in from chapter 2. And that preaching convicts the, so many people's heart. 3,000 come to the kingdom. 3,000 right there repent in Jerusalem. They come to the kingdom. And that was the beginning of the church. Last night, we had the opportunity to sit with an uh, Eastern Orthodox priest from uh, Greece in you know, Pastor John's house. There are a lot of uh, other, other peoples also there. As we sharing that, it was quite interesting time because we as a Protestant church, our history only goes back to the Reformation. But uh, 
their church, Eastern Orthodox Church, especially Greek Orthodox Church, who preached the gospel to their church first? It was Apostle Paul. There goes, history goes back all the way to the Apostle Paul. And we also work in, in a country called Georgia. And Georgia is also an Orthodox world. And then the, the, the Georgia, actually the first man who preached the gospel was uh, Apostle Andrew. When you go to Armenia, Armenia, the first pre- apostles, uh, the person who preached the gospel there was, was Apostle uh, Bartholomew. Okay, so that all the historical background goes all the way back. But when we're looking at our own history, it will take us for CLC, maybe it goes back to the Netherlands. <laughs> right? Hmm. If it's Lutheran, maybe it goes back to the Germany. Maybe some go to the Scotland, some goes to the England. Right? That's how far we can go. But I think we need to go further, right? And even Eastern Orthodox Church, their origin does not go to, the, uh, go to the, the, the Greece, but it goes all the way back to the Jerusalem, the scripture we read. And our root is not in Netherlands, our roots also in Jerusalem. And all started from Jerusalem, the scripture we just read. Whether you are Presbyterian, Methodist, Charismatic, Pentecostal, regardless of what background you're coming from. We all of us, as a people of God, our root as a church is from Jerusalem. We have the same roots, we have the same DNA that we had received from the Holy Spirit. Then why should we be divided, right? Why should we divide it? So I think one thing I want to emphasize today in my message from the Acts is the importance of what should we do today as a church. How we should do ministry as a church to create an impact to our community and to the nations. As we, as we read the, the book of Acts, uh, maybe we can kind of look through a little bit. Yeah? Do you have a Bible? Would you like to open Acts? So let me kind of just survey through the book of Acts, what was happening. Chapter 1, Lord told him, told them not to leave Jerusalem, stay in, uh, wait for the Holy Spirit. And chapter 2, Holy Spirit come, and then church begin to change. And chapter 3, we read all the revival, the miracles happening through the apostles, and church is growing, continuously growing. And then chapter 4, the first challenge is, Peter and John is called into Sanhedrin, and they were warned by the institution of their time not to use the name of Jesus Christ. That was the warning that we read from the chapter 4. You know, that is a power that Satan just cannot bear hearing the name of Jesus Christ. That's a power in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen. Amen. And you are, the, you are the bearer of the name on this earth. And Holy Spirit is in us. And that's, that's why Satan tried everything. So that his church cannot use the name of Jesus Christ. In every ways. So when the names been, been banned to use. But uh, Peter and John and all the disciples. They continuously preached in the name of Jesus Christ. 
And the chapter 5, we're going in, and miracles continue to happen. The power of the Holy Spirit uh, uh, revealed to, to purify the church, to challenge the people's motivation. And then we're going to chapter 6. And ministry getting bigger and bigger, and apostles decide that it, it's a too much work for us to do preaching and you know, all the taking care of the church. So now they decide to select the seven deacons for the church. So the seven deacons are selected, and one of them, one of the leading deacons of that group was a Stephan. And then the anointing upon the Stephan from deacon soon his role changed into apostolic ministry. Now he goes onto the street and starts preaching and then testifying who, who the Messiah is, who Jesus Christ was. And that is the chapter 7. As he was powerfully preaching, and the anointing was so strong, and he was convicting all those who were against the name of Jesus Christ. And eventually, to the end of chapter 7, there's a stoning of Stephen. Stephen was stoned to death. But uh, it's interesting. I want to bring your attention to the very last word of chapter 7. The very last word of the chapter 7 is, and the Saul approved of their killing him. Right? So this is the Saul, this, uh, the, the known to us as a Paul, approved the death of a, of a Stephan. But as you're observing, I'm sure, you know, in those days, stoning person was a very common practice of condemning the sinners. So it is not the first time he's witnessing somebody's being killed by being stoned. But when he watched the way the Stephen died, and I believe it challenged the core of his soul. Because he never seen men who die in such a peace and glad face under such a tremendous pain. Have you ever been stoned by even one stone? I did a few times, but not for the persecution's sake, but accident. <laughs> it hurts so much, even for about this size rock, right? But a rock they, at that time they use is about our fist size. As that rock hits Stephen, probably his face and whole body already covered with the blood. Maybe one of his eyes been already torn off, and his ears already been, been fall off. And that's the situation. In, under such a tremendous pain, and we, as we read from here, Stephen saw the Lord was sitting in the next to the Father. And he saw the glory of God, and he raised his hand and worshipped God, and he stopped praying for the forgiveness of the people. It challenged the core of, of the south. Because he was so jealous for his religion, but he never seen such courage. He knows that he didn't have such courage in him. And that actually turned soon to the fear in his heart. If we let these guys continue to preach the name of Jesus Christ, and then our religions, our institution will be endangered. And he's fully convinced, and he got permission from Sanhedrin and high priest, and he decided to, to go out to annihilate all the Christians who dispersed from the Jerusalem. On his way to Damascus, the Lord appeared to him, and he was totally changed. And that's what we read from the chapter, chapter 9, the Saul's conversion. He was, as he was leading his soldiers and heading to the Damascus, 
Lord appears in the vision and totally changes the Paul, the, the Saul, and he becomes blind for a while. And as we read in chapter 9, and soon that his eyes opened by, by the person that Lord has arranged. And then second middle part of the chapter 9 that I want to bring your attention to, which I think directly relate how we should do ministry today. When you read from the chapter 8, uh, verse 18 of chapter 9, the later part, Saul spent several days with the disciples in Damascus, verse 20, chapter 9, at once he began to preach in synagogues that Jesus is the Son of God. And he continues on till the verse uh, 31. And between chapter, uh, verse 19 to verse 31, what's happening here is that Paul was first in Damascus, and the Paul soon go into the Jerusalem. But uh, the scripture that saying, the verse uh, 20, it says as at once. I want you to pay attention to the word at once. Another way of saying, he didn't give time to the Holy Spirit. He didn't give time being instructed by the Holy Spirit or even receiving the power of the Holy Spirit. But he was very confident about himself because he's one of the best educated the, the, the rabbi at the time. He was the best man who can connect all the Isaiah and Jeremiah and all the prophets of the Old Testament connect to the Messiah and he can preach and testify about Jesus Christ. He was very confident about himself in terms of how he can testify about Jesus Christ. But how his works been recorded in the scripture is interesting. When you're moving to verse 22, it says, Yet Saul grew more and more powerful and baffled the Jews living in Damascus. It's not that he brought the salvation to the Jewish people, but he baffled with the Jews. And it's not the word of God become powerful, but it is become, Saul was become powerful. And his influence, his ideas, and his, his recognition as a Jewish scholar, as a Levi, that how knowledgeable, how powerful he was. So eventually, and he didn't reap much of a fruit from his ministry in Damascus, and soon his life was in danger, and he ran away from Damascus. And he was taken into the Jerusalem. So he, now the later part of that verse he walked into the Jerusalem, and none of the people in, in the Jerusalem church wanted to receive this guy. Because even a few weeks ago, he, he was killing Stephan, and he was, he was on, on his way to kill all the Christians. And everybody was afraid. But Barnabas is the man who trusts the situation. He brought Paul into the congregation and introduced Peter and other apostles, and he was accepted. And then Bible says he was freely moved around the Jerusalem. And what he did? Same thing. He's a baffle with the Jews, Hellenistic Jews. And he argues with them. Because uh, now I know. I know who Jesus is. I know who the Messiah is. Because I am the one of the best Levi. I'm the best educated man in this town. And I can testify you who the Messiah is. And the, what's the result in Jerusalem? None of them accept Jesus Christ. Everybody was confused, Bible says. Everybody went against him. So eventually, 
The believers in Jerusalem had to rescue him and send him to Tarsus, which is the southern part of the Turkey today, which is his hometown. That's where he grew up. And then he disappeared from the Bible for a while, from the book of Acts. Right? But uh, scripture is so comical. And I want you to go to verse 39. It says, Then the church, then what's the then? Saul's being kicked out from Jerusalem and sent him back to the Tarsus. And then, Bible says, the church throughout Judea, Galilee, Samaria, enjoyed the time of peace and was strengthened. <laughs> After Paul's been kicked out, Saul's been kicked out, everybody enjoying the peace and church was being strengthened. Isn't that so comical? Right? So comical. It was a good intention, but he was depending on his flesh, depending on his humanistic ability to bring the salvation to the people, and it wasn't effective. In fact, it creates the more confusion, it baffled with the people, arguing with the people, creating more tension with the society, even to the point that his position has been endangered. But uh, scripture changed the focus immediately to the Peter. And I want you to kind of read that. And from the verse 32, and verse 3 says, there was another man, Ananas. It was, he's a paralyzed man. And uh, 34 says, Peter says to him, Jesus Christ healed you. Get up and roll up your mat. And immediately Ananias got up. Verse 35 says, all those who lived in, in, in the uh, Lida and, and, and the, the Sharon saw him and turned to the Lord. Isn't that so contrasting? One side, there's so much argument and discussions and, and, and baffling. And one side, this, suddenly the scene is changing into the Peter. The Holy Spirit is revealing to us that what Peter was doing. This is exactly what Jesus was doing on the street of Jerusalem. His ministry was a continue on on the ministry of Jesus Christ. I believe today we as a church, we need to go back to the ministry of Jesus Christ. That how our Lord has done His ministry. And we need to follow our Lord Jesus Christ. It took quite a time for Saul to realize that. When he realized that, when he received the Holy Spirit, and now his name changed from Saul to Paul, which we read from chapter 13 in Antioch Church, which is the first Gentile church of our history. In the chapter 11, when you go, after the persecution of the Stephen, people were scattered in many different places. And so the different place, people coming into the Antioch, and then they first time, the believers in Antioch, which is Jewish believers in Antioch, start testifying to the Gentiles. And then many of the Gentiles were adding into the church in Antioch. And then once the Jerusalem heard about there's a revival is happening in Antioch, and they sent Barnabas to go in there to help the church. But I think in some ways, helping is one thing, but more so they wanted to make sure nothing goes wrong. And maybe they wanted to make sure Jerusalem will have a certain control over Antioch. Right? 
So Barnabas comes, and the Bible records Barnabas was a godly man full of faith, and he was rejoiced over the situation when the Gentiles was coming. And before that, when you read in, 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 in the Peter's case, in chapter 10, Peter also was calling to the Cornelius house with a Roman centurion. It's a Gentile's house. And Jews doesn't go into the Gentile's house. But he saw the three visions that the Lord has shown, show, shown to him. And he was totally convinced that he needed to go into the Cornelius' house and testify about the Jesus Christ, and which we read from the chapter 10. When we go into the Cornelius' house and testify and preach about the Jesus Christ, and the Holy Spirit fall upon Gentiles. And people were being filled with the Holy Spirit. And that is the chapter 10 that we read. So... Here's a one man who is a highly educated man, now sent it back in, into the Tarsus. And he's a very uneducated fisherman who is a following the model of the ministry of Jesus Christ and doing the same thing that was Jesus was doing and being led by the Holy Spirit who was walking to the, to the position or place that made the, the risk of his position. Because... When Jerusalem heard about, Peter went into the Cornelius, Gentiles house to preach. It's a big issue in Jerusalem. Maybe his position in Jerusalem will be challenged by the leadership of the Jerusalem church. That's the chapter 11. Chapter 11 repeats exactly the same thing. He comes to the Jerusalem and testify to everybody, explain every detail what the Lord has done, and try to convince the Jerusalem church, and this is the work of the Holy Spirit. It's not my mistake, but it is the Holy Spirit who led me to enter into the Cornelius house, and the Holy Spirit fall upon the Gentiles, and the Holy Spirit is not just for our Jews, but Holy Spirit for the peoples in the, all over the world. Holy Spirit is for the Americans and Chinese and Africans and Russians and all the Europeans and all over the world has entitled to receive the Holy Spirit. That was a testify of the Peter to the Jerusalem council. And so Lord is challenging the paradigm of a Jerusalem leaderships. Why? Because chapter 15 is coming, which is the Jerusalem council, which is probably the most important chapter for our Gentile churches today. Without the Jerusalem's counsel and spiritual blessing upon Gentile churches to continue on through Paul's ministry, I'm not even sure we will have a church today. But that change is happening. So I want you to kind of picture in your mind how the Spirit of God is moving. And from the very beginning, from chapter 1 to chapter 7, ministry in, in, in the Jerusalem and Judea, and this church totally forget about what the Lord has told them. When the Holy Spirit come upon you, you shall receive the power. You will be my witness from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria to the end of the earth. In the Jewish church's leadership mind, Lord, we are very comfortable with Jerusalem. We can reach out to Jerusalem. Lord, Judea is okay. It's the same Jewish people. But a Samaria, Lord, we are not quite sure. They didn't go into Samaria until chapter what? Chapter 7, right? Until way later, Philip went into the Samaria after the persecution of Stephen. And the paradigm was forced to be expanded. And that was happening. So they are experiencing in a local level from Jerusalem 
to Judea, to Samaria, and their mind was expanding. The whole ethnocentric mentality of the Jewish community and Jewish people now expanded big enough to spread into the Samaria now. But I'm not quite sure whether the Greeks, whether the Romans, whether Africans will come to the Lord and they will be entitled to receive the Holy Spirit. For that preparation, and that's what we read from the chapter 9, 10, and 11, Lord was preparing. Send Peter into the Cornelius house, and he comes back to Jerusalem community, and even the Romans have received the Holy Spirit. It's a powerful testimony to the Jerusalem council. And while all that was happening, Lord was preparing his secret weapon, which is the south. The Paul was being prepared. Scripture doesn't clearly describe what was happening in Tarsus almost over the period of 10 years' time. It's a long time he was in Tarsus. He was disappeared from the book of Acts. But when there was a revival was happening in Antioch church, and Barnabas was sent to Antioch, and then first thing that Barnabas do, and he goes to Tarsus and look for Paul and invite Paul into Antioch church, and then at the Antioch, that they together they, they preached and taught the church for one year. And that is Antioch church. And that Antioch church at the chapter 13, and they gather and pray. And the Bible is clearly described. In that Antioch church, there was a five-fold ministry. There was a teachers, there was a prophet, there was a prof the, the pastors, evangelists, they're all there. The fivefold ministry that the Bible, Paul was teaching in Ephesus 4, Ephesians 4, is clearly described in Antioch church. And this different function, the empowerment of the, of the leadership of people, they are working together as a, as a leadership of a body of a Christ and, and contributing to the body of a Christ through their calling and their anointing. And that was happening in chapter 13. In such a good DNA, just like what I see today here, in such a good DNA, the Spirit of God come and speak to them and set apart Barnabas and Saul, not a Paul yet. Okay? This is another interesting point I want to point out. Barnabas and Saul. Right? Barnabas and Saul. And they, they, as they've been selected to be set apart to preach the gospel, and when we go a little bit further, in verse 9, it says, then Saul, who was also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked straight, and it, well, I think we'll not go on, we'll just stop there. Then Saul, who was also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit. Okay. Here's no longer the same man who was baffling and arguing with the Jewish people, trusting his own belief. But he's the man now for whatever happened in Tarsus, whatever happened the one years of their preaching ministry in Antioch with the Barnabas, and totally transformed his worldview. And Spirit of God touched him. Holy Spirit has empowered him, and he's filled with the Holy Spirit, and he was engaging in the ministry. And that is the point Holy Spirit called him, not Saul, and begin to call as a Paul. So I think this is a critical uh, point where the transformation happened. And after the first journey of a Paul's mission journey from 14 
and there's a lot of people coming into the kingdom, and a lot of miracles also was performed by, by, the, the, by the Paul. And then they come back to the Jerusalem in chapter 15, and then chapter 15 officially recognized the leadership in Jerusalem, Peter, John, and all James, and everybody officially accept the Paul's ministry, and they recognize the ministry among the Gentiles, and they bless them. That is the start of the uh, chapter 16, and then, and which is a second journey, missionary journey, and third missionary journey. It's not a now independent or spontaneous movement from Antioch. Now it's connected to the roots from the Jerusalem, that blessing coming from the roots. And the whole intensity and capacity of the mission is a far increased. And, and then chapter 16, we see that the Holy Spirit appeared to him. About, he received at Troas, at the Macedonia call, and going into the Philippi and meeting Lydia. And that is the beginning of a, of a great mission that we're reading in the, uh, the Bible. And that mission continues still today, even in our time. That's why we are here. Our route goes back to Jerusalem. So as we're engaging in a church, I want to urge you, China was once a church, just like a Jerusalem church, who was waiting at the upper room, not knowing what's going to happen. Because uh, all the missionary was kicked out, and all the, all the church was destroyed, Bible was burned. But when the Spirit of God started moving in China, Holy Spirit led His people to build His church. A lot of power and signs and wonders went together with those evangelists and preachers in China, and which build over 100 million Christians in China. So today, I want to urge you that how we do ministry, how we engage in our world, not depending on our flesh, not depending on our only on knowledge. Knowledge is not bad, but knowledge is not the solution to build a church. We need to equip ourselves with the knowledge, but what builds the church is the Spirit of God. Holy Spirit, it will build a church. Amen. Let's, let's pray. Lord, I thank you for your word this morning. Lord, I pray that you release that anointing upon the City Grace Church, Lord. Lord, we just open our heart. And even open our arms, Lord, to receive the Holy Spirit in a new and more powerful way, Lord God. Lord, I thank you that you have prepared everything in a very right way and a beautiful way for your churches to, to be equipped with a great DNA to grow and become a powerful community to transform the city of New York and this nation of America and even to the nations, Father God. So I pray, Father, that you will bless and anoint the leadership of this church and you will just anoint every single person in, in, the, in this community, Father God. And let them be received the Holy Spirit, Lord. May your Spirit will fall upon us, Lord, in a powerful way. And your Spirit will fill us and empower us and guide us and speak to us, Lord God. So the ministry that we do is not the ministry that we do through the ideas of the man or the financial power or, or our, our even own experience, Lord God. But Lord, help us to be led by your Spirit, Lord. May the Holy Spirit be the center of our church and center of our life, Lord. May your Spirit will lead us, Lord God. 
May your empowerment, Lord, that comes from your anointing, Lord, will remain with us and enable us to move forward, Lord. We bless you, Lord, in Jesus' name we pray.